I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unfarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we're hearing from Mike Howard, a 22-year veteran of the CIA. His story serves as a reminder that some of America's warriors operate in the shadows. Mike started his career as a police officer in Oakland, California, before joining the CIA during the Cold War. He spent six years in the agency's Office of Security and the bulk of his career in the Counterterrorism Center. I grew up in in Northern California, always wanted to be a police officer, probably saw too many cop movies when I was growing up. Eventually, I ended up working in the Oakland Police Department in the late 70s. Unfortunately, Oakland has a lot of crime, and we, uh, but it was a great place to learn to be a police officer. Read a book one day off-duty called Piercing the Reich, which I still have a copy of in my office. And it was about how in World War II, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, was formed up to take on Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. I thought, wow, that might be interesting, and I wanted to travel the world. Ended up... Uh, Going to, believe it or not, they had CIA had open recruiting offices in the federal buildings back then. And it was during the Reagan buildup after he got elected. They were hiring more law enforcement, military police. So joined the CIA. I spent six years in their, what they call office of security, doing a lot of things I did later in life in the corporate security world, uh, including uh, uh, two years on the director of CIA's protective detail. Made the jump over to, you know, sometimes we call it the dark side, the clandestine side of the house. Worked in the director of operations in our counterterrorism center. For a vast majority of my career, I spent 22 years at CIA. You know, when I got in there in the 80s, it was the Cold War, but it was also Hezbollah and some of these nation-state organizations. We just lost William Buckley, one of our our chiefs of stations in, in Beirut. The gloves proverbially were off to go get these guys. And then the Iraq War, Gulf War I came around. And again, we were always in a good position. You know, during the, the recent wars, there, there have been these, you know, situations where you've had enhanced interrogations. And the people that were, were doing it there, I think were doing it fully understanding that they had the authority to do so. Uh, we were told as an organization, gloves off, right? I mean, we lost thousands of people in 9-11. We weren't going to let that happen again. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, and, you know, not all politicians are bad. You can't broad brush everybody. But it's interesting that, you know, in, in my optic, there were people in political positions that said, hey, go get them, and no problem at the time. And then afterwards, when there's blowback, well, you shouldn't have done that. Well, as an operator, you kind of don't have that, that luxury, right? You know, similar to the military, you're given an order. And, yes, you can defy it if you think it, it's wrong, but I think you take everything in terms of 
the times, the context of the times in which that particular operation or activity was taking place. It's okay to do reviews and to say, okay, could have done better here, could have done better here, but to take today's world and then project it back to when those things were taking place, I think it's unfair to the the boots on the ground who were just trying to do a good job. But people always talk about tip of the spear. We like to think of ourselves in the clandestine services as tip of the spear as well. In order to, I mean, when this country was founded, there were spies way back even in, in George Washington days, right? But the idea is that as a democracy, it is imperative that our policymakers get the best information they can so they can make the best decisions in the national security interests of our country or in the economic security interests or political interests. To a great extent, CIA officers are the ones that, that provide that information, the operators who actually have to meet with assets clandestinely, get information that we normally couldn't get as a country so that our policymakers have that holistic view of what's going on. You know, I think, in fact, I know that this country would be less safe and would not be in terms of information that our policymakers need. We'd have a gap if it wasn't for the operators, along with the analysts, obviously, who put a lot of that information together to get it to the policymakers. There'd be a huge gap. And so it's necessary. Operations is a necessary part Uh, in my opinion, of of any democracy. And they have to go hand in hand, but you can't have one without the other. I did a lot of work in Africa and Asia, primarily. You know, my first trip overseas was to uh, an African country. Obviously, I can't can't speak to it. You know, supporting uh, that particular country and with a team. And just the, the cultural differences and the fact that in many respects, it was still the Cold War. We didn't have a whole lot of friends in Africa, but we had some. And to be able to provide support for them was, I think, gratifying. You know, we had so much in the U.S. We had so much in terms of money and wealth and clothes and food. And to see some of the folks that you're working with who are fighting for their cause and fighting for their country not having a whole lot of everything, but hopefully we can provide them something, sometimes not even three squares a day if they're lucky to get one. That, that, was a, that was a lesson to me about what we were doing in these places and the value of what we brought, because hopefully we could also bring some of that, uh, some of the economic aid as well. You know, I can remember in one particular Asian country working a lot with their police, military intelligence folks. They were under threat. They were getting killed by a a terrorist organization, as well as we were being targeted. And the relationship was was very, very close. You felt it when one of them got killed. Obviously, you felt it when one of ours got killed, too. I think the gratifying part of it was they were willing to put their butts on the line to help us, and we were going to do the same. And we were able to do some things out there that hopefully helped stem the tide and gave the bad guys a little bit of pause. It's situations like that when you're under extreme threat, you know, I'm a big James Bond fan, but most, most CIA officers don't carry weapons unless they're in dangerous areas. And we had a lot of weapons. We were driving armored cars and we were under extreme threat. But yeah, I mean, that particular service especially uh, comes to mind. There was a, another group in Europe, a, a special unit that just before we went there to do some work with them, one of their guys had been shot uh, by a Libyan extremist. And so it, it kind of brought home 
you know, what we were up to, but the fact that, again, they're willing to fight and hopefully we're able to do some, some, some damage to the bad guys there too. For those listening that don't know or haven't heard, uh, when you enter CIA headquarters in the lobby, there's a wall of honor with stars that are punched out of marble, a star for every CIA officer that's been killed. There's a, a book, a remembrance book, and in some cases, the name of the, the officer who was killed is blank because their operations were so covert. And so when, when an officer is killed, there's acknowledgement, obviously, by the White House and national security folks, but it's not in the open. They may go to CIA headquarters. There are ceremonies at our headquarters. Even things like getting meritorious unit citations or awards, you're, you're given those awards uh, at a ceremony, and then they're taken away from you and put into your personnel file because you can't take them home. You can't put them on your wall. You're a clandestine officer. But I think for us, it was badge of honor that when one of ours died, we celebrated them and their lives, but we did it with our own family. We didn't need to, nor could we share it with anybody else outside of that family. Typically in the agency, if you're an officer and you're going to get involved with somebody, and you think the relationship is going, you know, it's going to go really well, maybe going to get married. At some point, you got to let the agency know. And the agency's got to start doing a little bit of background investigation. And at some point, when you can, you'll be able to tell him or her that you are a CIA officer, but they can't say anything. They've got to stick to whatever cover story you've been given. Same thing with kids. You know, I never had kids, but uh, a lot of my colleagues told me, yeah, we had to figure out the right time when we could tell our kids that no, daddy or mommy, they don't work for X, we work for the agency. And I don't know the statistics nowadays. When I was there, just like in law enforcement, whether it's local or, or federal, you know, there's a big divorce rate. I think the statistics are better if you're with somebody who's in the agency. And even, even then, if you think about it, you know, if I'm working in counterterrorism center and my spouse is working for Africa division, there are a lot of things we can't talk about what we did during that day because those I don't have a need to know what they're doing in Africa Division and vice versa unless there's a joint operation or something. So it's a really interesting dynamic and it's something that you are faced with the entirety of your career. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Like I said, I was in counterterrorism for most of my career. And I worked a lot with foreign military and intelligence police groups uh, to go after bad guys. Now, in one particular country, there was a particular foreign national that we believe was possibly supporting terrorist activities and working out of his embassy. We knew from our intel that, you know, once a month this person was flying from one country to the country that I was working at the time to another country for suspected meetings with his colleagues. My superiors at the time uh, wanted me to fly to this other country where he, this person went once a month to get back on a flight with him back home uh, to our home country uh, where his embassy was and to try to get some 
assessment data, see if he could talk to me. The fact that I was I was black and this person was from a, a third world country, they figured uh, maybe he'd be willing to talk to me uh, more than somebody else. I said earlier, I've been to Africa a lot uh, prior to that time. And so, you know, you have to come up with a, a cover story. And my cover was that I was a professor of, of uh, black history uh, doing a sabbatical, which I could certainly talk about. And heading from this person's home country back to where you know, I was assigned to visit an old friend of my dad's um, who served with him in Vietnam. One of the guys working for me was an African-American former Special Forces captain. Uh, so he can certainly fit that bill, right, if they needed to. And so I flew to this other country. And back in those days, no Internet. I had a picture of this person. But as it turned out, I didn't have to be... Uh, a super, super duper intel officer to figure out who this guy was because as soon as this guy entered the airport, uh, he was shadowed by a lot of the police and the intel from uh, the country that we were in at the time because they were watching everybody from his particular embassy. And I was supposed to have a seat next to him on the plane, but, you know, as Murphy's Law goes, it didn't work out. And as uh, we got on the plane, um, I wasn't seated right across from him. So I was thinking, oh, how am I going to make contact now? And there was an incident where there was a woman with a baby and spilled milk and crying and everything. And we both kind of looked at each other at the same time and started laughing a little bit. And we started talking. At some point, he came and sat next to me and we were, we were talking. And, uh, you know, he asked me if I was an American. I said, yes. I told him what I was allegedly doing. I played very sympathetic to this person and his country. You know, I haven't always been treated well, you know, in, in my own country and Tried to get that sympathy, which I think it got. And he actually ended up showing me documents from his embassy. He's very sloppy that way. Now, it could have been recipes uh, for fried chicken for all that. I didn't read the language. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain they were the legitimate documents. And he talked about the pressure that they were feeling back at his, at his embassy from the local services, who they felt were working with the Americans. A lot of atmospherics about what was going on with different personalities in there that I was able to glean, and also the fact that he didn't seem like he was too happy with the situation that he was in. You know, we got back to our home country. He got scooped up by his, by his security folks. You know, we tried to make a, a few other contacts, but he was, he was certainly under wraps. But I got a lot of good atmospherics from that. I got a lot of good information from that. Um, so your clandestine CIA skills, you've got to, and you've got to be a chameleon. You've got to play different roles. You've got to understand what pushes someone's buttons so that they're willing to give you information or at least be sympathetic with you. So that was, that was sort of one vignette. I wanted to talk about that because that was the traditional CIA operation, as you were. I was in another country, and this country had a history of coup attempts. This particular time, this was a bad one. Uh, a, a faction of the military had started a coup against the government they had a wide swath of the city that we were in uh, under their control. You know, we, I remember we, we had one case officer that happened to be in a hotel and was reporting to us uh, at the embassy that there were tanks, you know, coming up into the courtyard of the hotel and they were starting to knock on doors. And he was kind of joking, like, I'm starting to empty the minibar because, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything else to do. And so at that point, we had probably 200 Marines that were flown in to surround the embassy to protect it, to augment the Marine Security Guard detachment there. 
again, I happened to be there on some some other business, and we had a case officer that was kind of behind enemy lines, right? This case officer had been out there meeting with an asset and an asset's family. And when the coup attempt hit, they were behind those lines that the uh, that the coup plotters had taken over and didn't feel that it could leave that house uh, with the asset. And then the asset said, I'm not leaving here without my family uh, to get them to, you know, safe harbor, which is probably, you know, near the embassy or at the embassy. So the decision was made. Uh, there happened to be a team of people that I knew there that were pretty good shooters, you know, and had good kinetic skills. And we kind of loaded up and, you know, brought our weapons, put on the vests and told the CEO we're coming to get them. And we took off. It was pretty hazardous because we never had to engage, but it, it was hairy because these guys had checkpoints everywhere. And we had to figure out a way to get to this case officer without being caught. And we brought an extra large vehicle. We got two vehicles actually because we needed to we needed to uh, compensate for for his family, the assets family. And we finally got there. They were all frazzled, needless to say, scared as heck. So got them all loaded up in our armored cars, and we had to make the same hazardous trip back. And probably that whole op probably took three to four hours. And when you look on the map from where the embassy was to where this place is, you know, even the traffic in that particular country, which is pretty bad, and you make it in an hour. But just having to take these securities routes, seeing a checkpoint, backing off, going to another side street, there were no GPS coordinates at that time. We had maps, you know, and under low lighting and trying to figure out how to get there and making sure that we were all staying with each other too because, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't want to lose uh, one car. Uh, we eventually made it back and got the, the officer and his family to safety. Uh, but it, it just gives you another sense of what we can do and or the fact that we can do that kind of action if we need to, in addition to the, the traditional clandestine spy stuff. That was former CIA officer Mike Howard. Mike was a CIA station chief before he left to be the chief security officer at Microsoft. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from a member of the first Special Service Force. Lieutenant Bill Story served in World War II in the joint American-Canadian unit known as the Devil's Brigade. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get that episode in your feed as soon as it's out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.